Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest today is Neelam. I interviewed Neelam a couple of years ago, and uh, you may want to listen to that interview before listening to this one, but otherwise just go ahead and listen to this one. It'll be fine on its own. Neelam is a direct disciple of H.W.L. Punja, Papaji, whose teacher was Ramana Maharshi. Her unequivocal commitment to truth helps us turn inward and release underlying patterns of conditioning which block the recognition of our true nature. With the utmost tenderness while helping us to address all aspects of daily living, including past conditioning and trauma, she invites us into the same recognition of truth that her teacher, Papaji, transmitted to her. And uh, I can attest to that, having listened to about 13 hours worth of Neelam's recordings before this interview and about 20 hours before the previous one, um, there's a real sweet uh, rapport between her and the people that she works with. And she, she works with small groups uh, on um, phone conferences and probably in other ways as well, but that's what, uh, and, and extending over a period of months. So there's a sort of an ongoing course that people take and interact with Neelam. And there's a very sweet family feeling that develops among the participants and a lot of personal attention. Um, so Neelam, uh, welcome again. Thanks for, for doing Thanks. this. Welcome, thank you. Yeah. And uh, I'd like to start with a, a basic question, which is that the word awakening or sometimes enlightenment, maybe we'll see if you distinguish between those two words, uh, is used a lot. You hear so many people saying, I had an awakening. Um, and, but unless we all agree on what that actually means, then we're not communicating when we use the word. You know, one person says one thing and 10 different people hear 10 other things. So I'd like to start this interview by having you define what you mean by awakening and perhaps also enlightenment if there's any distinction between the terms and that'll provide a good foundation for the rest of our discussion. Beautiful. So I, I really think it's a very important question because as you say so many things can be called awakening. Right? So you know I, I, I have to start, I have to go back and I have to start with the direct experience of presence. Because first of all, that's the you know the very direct transmission of the natural state, right? It's also the gift of this lineage, you know, that this lineage just goes directly right there and says, "Here you are, that's your nature, and you can know that in this moment, right? So we have to begin with this because without knowing this, you know we can't talk about anything. It can't be just a mental understanding. It has to be an actual experience, right. right? So once we have that, once we know that, and whenever that happened, right, it might have happened a long time ago or, or years ago or lifetimes ago, or, you know, that there's this process that starts, which is really guided by our desire for freedom. And that's what I call the process that leads to awakening. And in this process, we will go through these experiences, many different times of experiences of expansion and, you know, kind of out of body, you know, and bliss and love and peace and oneness and, and consciousness and all sorts of different things we may experience. And yet eventually we are going to go back to identifying or go back to that sense of identity as me, that little sense of identity, right? So it will be a great experience and it will be like, ah, you know, I'm back here. And that is going to go on and on and on for however long it goes. This is it's predetermined. We don't know. But eventually, eventually we come to this moment where that shift happens. And the shift happens and it's a change from that sense of uh, 
identity that is based in the body, right? We habitually, even, even when we point to ourselves, we say, this is me. And then when, when we direct our attention inward, it goes, it lands first on the sense of the body, right? And that is the sense of identity. And in the moment of awakening, something happens, something shifts, something changes, and that sense of identity changes into knowing oneself as presence. And so now it's not, any, it's not a mental knowing, it's an actual direct knowing that in the moment when you bring your attention to your uh, inner, where the attention lands is a presence, right? It's nowhere, it's nothing, right? Is it ever 100% one way or the other? Um, you know, is there anybody in the world who is you know, just 100% identified with presence and no sense of individuality or anybody vice versa who is so completely locked into their individuality that there's just no remnant of presence whatsoever? Or is it all as a matter of 50-50 or 40-60 or 30-70? I don't know that this is the point and I don't know that this is the point when we talk about awakening. Because when we talk about, when I talk about awakening, I'm talking about that shift of attention, that shift of attention. And th there's no percentage in it, you know, there's no percentage. You either know yourself as this body or you know yourself as presence. There is no like 70% knowing yourself as presence. Now, however, awakening doesn't necessarily mean the end of conditioning, right? right. It doesn't necessarily mean that once awakened, that means nothing ever arises and there's no stuff going on. That's not true. It means only that there really is the knowing, the actual knowing that is not anymore, it's not anymore a question. It's also not anymore. See, before it was like, is this it? Wow, that was great. And then where is it? Right? And now that is not there anymore. There's a simple knowing that who we are is always here. It doesn't mean that that's the end of conditioning. It doesn't mean that that's the end of everything that arises. So uh, I heard you describing a period, I think you might have been with Mother Mira then, when you'd be in bliss for a period of days maybe, and then you'd be in hell for a period of days. And bliss and hell, and bliss and hell. Throughout the same day, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> And uh, you said, you know, eventually you got tired of that and you felt you needed to find a teacher who could bring you out of that cycle and you found Papaji and, and that eventually happened. When it eventually did happen, was the awakening you experienced substantially unique and different from the bliss period that you experienced with Mother Mirror? In other words, was it a whole different, whole different ball game? It wasn't just... Different. And when you say, I found Papaji, I would say Papaji found me or Satsang found me or... You know, when, when the desire is true on the inner, the, the universe or the or consciousness responds to that, right? That's how we find, find the teacher, right? Or the teacher finds us or however that works. So, yes, completely different because sitting in blissful states, there will be an end to it. And there will be a period when there wouldn't be any blissful states, mm -hmm. right? So it will be coming in and out of it, right? It was like a samadhi state that was not yet the final samadhi where there isn't any more the coming out of it. So there will be that blissful state and then there will be suffering. 
and now there is no coming out, you know, there is no coming out of knowing. It, it doesn't depend on the state, you see, There's no, it is not dependent on is there bliss here or is there pain here or is there challenges here or is there just blissful, loving states here. That doesn't matter, that doesn't touch it. So now you would not say that you're in bliss all the time, uh, but awakening is different than being in bliss all the time. That's what you're saying. For sure, definitely. definitely. So you could be unhappy or angry or feeling sick or all kinds of, you know, things that we don't usually consider to be blissful, but those don't compromise the awakened state necessarily. We can say all these states arise in presence and there's always a, a challenge or, or a chance to identify with it. Mm. That is still always the possibility, right? So there needs to be that real true vigilance right, with that. However, that knowing of who I am, that's not something that comes and goes, right? That's not something that happens, you know, when, when there's everything is going well and then it unhappens, you know, that is not affected by whatever states arise here. Yeah. And so by knowing who I am, you mean whatever states are coming and going, presence is like a continuum and is just not affected or diminished by so those states. Let's do it right now, Rick. Why mm -hmm. don't, you, why can't I ask you to just direct your attention towards your inner? Closing my eyes or just doing it? You can, you can do however you want. Close your eyes or open. It doesn't matter to me. Okay, I'll close my eyes. Just direct your attention towards the inner. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. And what do you know in this moment? What do you know? Same presence as when my eyes are open and my attention is directed outwards, but with more, less uh, sensory input. Right, right, right. Of course, of course. But the presence is not different, right? Correct. Yeah, and, 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 and it doesn't matter, like, maybe now you're feeling whatever you're feeling because we are sitting and doing an interview, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe if an hour from now you will be in a completely different state because something will be going on in your life, right? Yeah. Something different, and yet when you direct your attention towards this, is it any different? No, and what I find is that you don't really need... Maybe it made a difference in the early days, but after a while, you don't really need to direct your attention to it any more than you need to direct your attention to breathing. And in fact, thinking about it or trying to put your attention on it doesn't make it any more there than forgetting to think about it causes it to go away. It's sort of like exactly. a, a solid thing. Exactly. And I'm just reflecting back on what you said. Was there a difference between the when I was, you know, sitting in bliss and suffering and mm -hmm. then after the awakening, and I remember that the first time after that awakening experience when I went to, back to satsang with Papaji, and I walked into that satsang, and I knew in this moment, you know, Papaji is me, everything is me, everything is just here. And as before, it was, this is me, and this is Papaji, and, th and this is the thing that is going on here, and these are the people, right? Yeah. And now everything is just me, right? Everything is just me. And that's just how it is, you know? There is no separation. So after your awakening, then, everything was in terms of the self, you could say. Exactly, exactly. And from then on, or was that just a, an initial taste and then that kind of faded? And it yeah, from then on, what, what faded, initially there was this elation and blissful states mm -hmm. connected with this experience. And that lasted maybe a couple of years, mm -hmm. right? 
And that subsides too, but that knowing that everything is who we are, that's always here. That doesn't change. That's interesting because in my experience, I feel that presence is very strong, but I, I don't feel like I've totally gotten this thing of everything is me. You know, and I've, I've discussed this with some other people I've interviewed also. When I look at the tree or I look at my computer or something, I don't sort of have that sense that I hear some people describing. It makes me wonder, you know. I hear you, I hear you. And so, so just, just can, can we do one more time? Close your eyes mm -hmm. one. And when you have your eyes closed and you really direct your attention towards the inner, and when you hear my voice speaking right now, Rick, where is that voice coming from? Well, it's just in my own consciousness. It's here, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's not coming from anywhere. Right? Mm -hmm. so, so just for a moment, give, that, give the moment of attention to what you just said. It's in your own consciousness. Yeah, and so is the tree and the car and the... Everything really, truly is in your consciousness. I, I see that, I understand that, but somehow I don't interpret that as seeing things as me. You know what I mean? Because you're still thinking about it, you see? If you're using your mind and the concept of me and you and all that, that's why I had you close your eyes because then it's easier. And I had you to just experientially, see, we have to go by experience, just listen to your, to where that voice is coming from. You instantaneously said, it's here, it's, it's in my consciousness, right? Well, if, if the me is presence, if I'm presence, then it seems to me that when I look at a tree, the tree should be appreciated predominantly as presence, if the tree is me. But I'm not so sure I get that. I don't want to be disingenuous in my own experience. I mean, I don't want to hamper it by throwing in unnecessary doubts, but at the same time, I don't want to... I've, I've always had this tendency to not want to claim anything that I don't feel I'm really experiencing. And, and that's really good because otherwise, if it's false, then it's not true and it's not, it's not congruent and that's not right. But at the same time, you know, see the sensory experience, when we engage through senses, it takes over. And, and that's the habit of still identifying with the body, right? When you have your eyes open and you look at a tree, I'm looking at the plant here. And if you're looking through your senses, you are going to see you and it. If you're looking through that knowing that you have within, if you go back to that knowing, I wonder what would happen if you would just sit and there's a tree and you would not engage, you know, the senses that, that want to interpret for you. This is me, this is the tree. That interpretation happens so habitual, you don't even know that it's happening. Before you know, your brain has relayed information to you and you're like, yeah, well, that's me, that's the tree and whatever. But if you would listen with this deeper sense of, you know, presence or truth, I wonder what would be your experience. That's interesting. And of course, you still have to use your senses. I mean, if you were blind, if I were blind, uh, we wouldn't see the plant or the tree. Someone would have to tell us it's there unless we felt it with another sense or it made some noise or something. So we still have to use our senses. But I guess you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there's a kind of an, an ex, a way of experiencing in which the senses are still functioning, but there's something deeper that is perhaps more predominant or as part of the mix there through which you are actually experiencing. It's, it's almost like the deeper level of what you are is communing with the deeper level of what the tree it's is, like, and that's know, how it's known. You know it, and you know it before thought, right? Yeah. You know it before thinking. You know it before you know it's an object. 
And even a blind person, I would say, because of my sensitivities, I live with no electricity most of the time. Mm -hmm. So I live a lot in the dark, you see, and yet in the dark, dark, you know, out there dark, right? Yeah. And yet there is that sense of knowing and, and things, you know, that is prior to thinking, right? It's we, we know things, you know, we just, and, and the reason I'm saying I'm not trying to take anything away from your experience, but I'm just pointing you that somewhere without knowing, you still use the sensory as the guiding post. It's not that we are not to have the sensory. The sensory is important. In the very deep samadhi, there is no sensory. But then the sensory is important when we are in the body, but what is it that you rely on when you are in the inner, right? Are you relying on your knowing or are you relying on the senses? The senses yeah. are still here. That's, it's not, we, we are trying to deny or suppress, you know? But what, where is your attention? Right? True. I mean, if you're really inner, if you're meditating or something, then you're, the senses are, as it says in the Gita, turning within like a tortoise withdrawing its limbs. So you're not really engaging them at all. And then, but of, of course, we can't exist in that state all the time. We have to eat and <laughs> earn a living and stuff. So we're engaging our senses. But you just taught me something interesting that I don't think I had really thought of, or at least not, it wasn't kind of in the forefront of my understanding, which is that, you know, you begin to function in a way in which there's something deeper than the senses, or perhaps it's a subtle realm of the senses that begins to operate. And that begins to interact with objects of perception at their deeper level as well and to appreciate the deeper level of the of the thing rather than just what the gross surface perception has to offer is is that correct right right and, and what i'm saying is that in the awakening that sense of ground shifts yeah now we are coming from a different ground you see it's mm -hmm. not that the senses have to disappear and the, you know they may disappear at moments and then they might appear back at moments it doesn't matter it's the body right mm -hmm. but what matters is that ground that we come from and in, in this ground everything is you see yeah everything is and everything same 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 no different right mm -hmm. different in form different in appearance but not different in the essence Still on this theme of awakening and what it is and so on, I, I read a quote by a Zen master at one point and he, he spoke about having had many, many awakenings over the years, some major, some minor. And the analogy occurred to me of like education. Someone could go to the first grade and study arithmetic and he might say, okay, I am doing mathematics. And he's right, but he's not doing what a PhD student in mathematics is doing, but both things are mathematics. And yet there's been this, this sort of evolution of of what they're doing. Now that's of course just a metaphor, but in terms of awakening, can we honestly say that there can be an awakening and it's valid and it's legitimate and it's exactly what you've defined in terms of shifting one's orientation to presence being the predominant identity, but then there could be numerous levels of deepening and clarification of that over time. Feel free to disagree if you do, because uh, I, this uh, is just a... Yeah, and first of all, you know, when, when we say many awakenings, then we have to define. Because I remember having a lot of amazing experiences mm -hmm. before this that I could have called awakening. And back then, maybe for a lack of understanding, but luckily, I wasn't very educated in the spiritual terminology, you see. So I didn't have the points of reference to like say, well, this was it and this was not. But they were extreme states, blissful, you know, beautiful, you know, expanded. And, and I could have called that awakening. Because since this, in the one sense, there is no change. Right. That is not going anywhere. 
that is not evolving in any way. What is really evolving is the embodiment of that. What is really evolving is how that knowing informs everything that arises here. That's what has changed. Then I can say from that time, if we look at time, at whenever that happened to this time, there is a tremendous change in the embodiment of that. There isn't change in the actual experience of it. Here it is. That was, it was like that before too. Let me pursue that a little bit more. I understand about embodiment. We'll elaborate on that more. Uh, but no change in the actual experience of it. Does that mean that if, again, using a metaphor, if we compare it to a light, it's not like the light is getting brighter and brighter and brighter. It's still light. It's not changing from one thing to another. It's still light, but it's getting brighter all the time. So would you say that your actual appreciation of presence is getting clearer, more profound or anything, or is it just, it is what it is? The truth is the truth, is the truth you know, the truth is the truth that is the truth, you know. So, so the, the actual knowing that this is not this body or this mind or this these senses that arise here, that has not changed. Okay. And when you say knowing, you don't just mean an intellectual thing, you mean, I mean an experiential thing. Experiential, that hasn't changed, right? That was there from that very moment. It was the wow and back then it was new now it's not new anymore it, back then it was like wow and now it's like yeah it's normal right right what, what has really changed though is you know what has really changed is how that has penetrated through the levels of personality through the levels of perception conditioning or or understanding you know how how deeply that has informed now everything that arises here and how the expression see if i would look at you know how i used to speak about it however many years ago and how i speak about it right now the expression has changed tremendously right and the reason for that change is because there has been an inner change right there has been an inner willingness to just say okay let me be here let me just sit with what arises let me not assume anything let me not land in any spiritual understanding let me not assume anything, you know, from what I know already, right? Let me just see in a moment over and over and over again. Can I be here? Can I be here? Is this, is this a true? Is this the truth also? Can I also in this find truth and rest and, and peace and quiet even when that arises? Is that truth? Let me not land anywhere. Let me not land in understanding. Let me not land in awakening. Let me not land in that either. So that, that willingness has, has made you cooperative, so to speak, and you're, <laughs> you, you've been a willing patient lying still on the operating table while nature rearranges your, your brain. Times, <laughs> we can say at times cooperating, right? <laughs> times resisting, like, no, no, no. Yeah, but ultimately you haven't. Well, what other choice is there, you know? Right. Once you know nothing, see, see, see the, the thing is once you know nothing is satisfying anymore. Yeah. Nothing can satisfy other than this knowing. It just really doesn't. So. And I presume this is an ongoing process. Like five years from now, ten years from now, you might say to me, you know, remember when we did that thing back in... Exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. No, so of course, of course. Yeah. How about the word enlightenment, at least in terms of your use of that word? Is, is there any sort of ultimate uh, endpoint to all this process and we might reserve the word enlightenment for that? Or would you use it just synonymously with awakening and then probably in, in your understanding there is no endpoint? You know, I would be very careful because there is, 
there's many different kinds of information about it out there, you know, so I'm very careful to not to use the word enlightenment. And I'm rather using it one and the same as awakening or very close, you know, because that's how Papaji used it, you know, he used it as one thing that, that he wasn't really, he wasn't really speaking much about the differences, you know, even though I could say there are some differences. But, you know, um, what Ramana says, what is interesting, you know, what I read in a little uh, obscure little book that the Ramana Ashram has published a long time ago is that, you see, because once awakening or enlightenment, whatever we call it, it happens, there's no volition anymore. This is the end of that movement, like, I, I want to know it, I want to get it, I want to understand it, that's the volition, right? That's that's the individual still looking for something, searching. So this end of volition. So, so there really isn't any more, if that's the true stage, there isn't any more an individual looking for anything anymore. However, what he describes is that there are four or three other stages that happened, that happened, but they happen as a destiny of a particular individual. They were different individuals on the planet, and then there are different individuals on the planet that can reach, for example, state of living in the Turiya, living in the fourth state, you know, where there is just no memory and there is no time. And there is that much greater, you know, knowing of or transcending of this individual kind of experience, but that doesn't happen by desire. That happens of its own, if that was the destiny of the individual. So, so he says that, he says there are three other stages, but they are not reached by wanting. You can't reach them because you, you sit here and think, I would like this. So if it's your destiny or your dharma or the way you happen to be wired, then maybe you will reach them. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. So, so what happened for me a long time ago, you see, what happened for me a long, long time ago was everything fell away and that any interest in anything other than being here fell away. So there stopped to be interest in what is this and what is that and what kind of state am I in and is this this or is that that and how does that measure on this scale or, or all of that which in the beginning still as, as, a, as an imprint was still functional. There was still some time, some years, you know, that was functional, like, yeah, awakening, sure, yeah, awakening. And, and then that fell away, too. And yet you've devoted your life to spirituality and to teaching spirituality. And so obviously this still is your most ardent interest. When I say, when I say it fell away, what fell away was needing to know anything. Or be certain about anything or anything because what is here in the moment you in the moment are either you are at rest and knowing your true nature you are suffering there's only these two options so if you really you know for in my experience if you really want to just be very 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 clear and very adamant about where are you at that's all that matters right mm. you know who's going to measure that what's the measurement who's interested you know who needs to know are we here or are we there or what is the state or you know, that was still there a little bit as a construct, as a structure, you know, and that fell away naturally. And the interest became only, can I be here? And yet, as a teacher, I've heard you give nice talks for half hour, 45 minutes at a stretch about some particular topic, and you sound very knowledgeable. So you do have, you do know things, and you impart that knowledge as a teacher. 
You know, at some point what I realized is because in the beginning when I was teaching, I was just sharing the direct experience. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't really even speak much back then because, see, there was not much integration between that awakened state and the body-mind. You know, the brain wouldn't function. There wouldn't be any, you know, words that would come. And after a while, though, I realized that knowing of the direct experience of presence is not, not, is not necessarily everything that my students need to know. There's a difference there. Like, I don't live in that thinking about it, right? And yet when I come to teach, I recognize, oh, that knowledge needs to be verbalized in some way. That inner experience needs to be shared in some way. That understanding of what's happening has to be somehow explained to others. What I'm trying to say is that when I live my life moment by moment, there isn't really any kind of reflection of like, who am I and why am I like this and what's, you know what I mean? Like that kind of doesn't happen. Yeah, that would just be a lot of mental agitation. It's just natural just being here. It might relate back to how we're wired because there have been a number of great sages who have been really erudite and written, you know, like Shankara written these long, exactly. complicated things. And that was, exactly. that was his uh, fort, that was his skill. Exactly. And in a way, I see that, you know, the challenge of my health has brought a certain, a certain opportunity with it, right? Mm. Because not, not being able to travel, not being able to see people in person, not being able to do the things that I used to do, there was a lot of deepening in the real, true understanding of what it means moment by moment, you know, can I be here? And how to work with what arises here and how to understand the body, the nervous system, the brain more to really help it to able to come to rest. So there has been a lot of deepening and from it, see, that's what you are listening to, you write hours and hours and hours. From it, there have been a lot of different topics that would arise here and a lot of different things that would arise to speak about and to share, right? Which really are the result of just this inner process, though, I'm, I'm trying to say, you see, it's a result of what's going on on the inner, right? And then it wants to express itself and it wants to share it with others too, to say, hey, you know, this is, we, we could look at that, right? Isn't that interesting? That's an interesting phenomenon, actually. It seems like people go through all sorts of things, and, and even, even though those things might not be something we would request or you know, hope for because they're difficult, but they all end up being part of our toolkit. You know? and, and if we end up becoming a teacher, I, I, a lot of people I've spoken to, they say that they don't regret a single thing. You know? Like, for instance, Adyashanti was on Oprah the other day, and he said he went through a period of life after his initial awakening, which was really hell for about five years. But he said he wouldn't change a thing because it sort of endowed him with certain capabilities as a result of those experiences. Exactly. And we never know, you know. So that's why, that's why I don't try to analyze, you know, where I'm at. I'm just like, okay, here I am. Here it is. Can we be here? Is that what we can do? So another thing I'm interested in about presence, like you were, well, mentioning Adyashanti, for instance, he had an experience similar to yours where he... He was sitting at a bus stop and he said, I just want to know the truth and I don't care exactly. what, it, what happens to me. It could be hell, it could be heaven. I just want to know it. Bring it on. And sure enough, it came on. You go. And, and you said kind of a similar thing. And what I find interesting about that is that this is almost as if somebody's listening. That intelligence which is governing the universe is seek and you shall find. It's, it's, it's sort of like a, if we reach out from our side with that sincere intention, we get a response. Maybe you could respond to that and I'll, I'll ask another question about it. The teacher is the inner, 
the true teacher is the inner. However, if we could fully surrender into what we know on the inner, then we wouldn't know we wouldn't need an outer teacher. But most of us, most of us, you know, there are examples, you know Ramana. Yeah, you Ramana. Know, there in and done, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't know what it means done also, I don't want to put labels, but you know, no human teacher. And most of us though don't fully know how to surrender to the inner, to the what the inner is telling us is true. So the way consciousness responds is when there's true desire for freedom, it would respond. Mm -hmm. It would respond by bringing us in touch with the teacher. And it would respond by bringing us in touch with the teacher who can speak to us in the words that we understand. That no, teacher may be a human teacher, or it may be a disease, or it may be whatever we need, it seems. Whatever it is, right, right. Mm. Whatever it is that helps us to trust that inner experience, right? Whatever helps us to yeah. trust. But to me, the, the fascinating implication of that is that presence is not just merely some kind of... It has intelligence to it. It's responsive. You know, if we look deeply enough into what we mean when we say the word presence, think of your thumb and what's actually going on in there on the molecular level, the biological level, the atomic level. There's this incredible world of intricate interactions and, and things going on, all so orderly and, and intelligent in their, in their functioning. To me, that's, it begins to speak of God, you know, that, that presence... Yeah, we can say what power is that, right? Yeah. So we can call it, you know, there's many ways to call it, right? Presence, consciousness, space, God, right? Even though I don't really relate to God as a person, right? No, not an isolated person, but some... But, no, yeah. just the force, right? Well, because what, what power is that? You know, what power is anything, right? Yeah. Well, it's amazing if you think about it. Some people, you hear the word presence, Eckhart Tolle talks about the now, and you just think of this sort of dumb mass of being or presence with no... It, it could evoke that kind of understanding, but if you actually think about what's actually going on in everything you see and everything that's within and without you, there's this infinitely awesome orchestra taking place. That's, I think, fascinating. And th when you say things like you have a desire and then and then presence responds by giving you this experience or bringing you this teacher or something, it always reminds me of that, that, that we're not talking about some kind of mechanistic thing or mere being. We're talking about a sentient, uh, maybe an omnipresent sentience, but an in, a vast intelligence that we seem to be just immersed in that pervades everything for sure i'm talking a bit too much but i i, I oh that's good it's good you need to that that particular point just in kind of intrigues me and i, I enjoy bouncing it off people that i interview to, sure. to see what, how sure. they feel about that sure 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 i mean have you found for instance you've talked about of since your awakening even you, that the embodiment has progressed through many many stages have you found a dawning of kind of a deeper sense of devotion or expansion of the heart. For instance, Ramana had his awakening and then he spent his life devoted to the intelligence that, that was embodied in Arunachala. And many other spiritual people have, like Adyashanti again, he, he had his initial awakening and, and then over time he just began to be fascinated with the person of Jesus. And he felt like Zen, he, he actually said in that interview that Zen seemed kind of lacking in love, lacking in qualities of the heart. And it didn't satisfy him because he felt his own heart was blossoming after his awakening. So has that been a dimension of your experience since your initial awakening and the embodiment you referred to? Has it had to do with 
uh, growth of the heart? You know, I would say it, it really, if we call it the heart, then I would say it, it really is a continuous embracing or meeting of everything as is. Mm -hmm. And it's really allowing for everything. Because you see, what I'm interested in lately, you know, as I'm speaking with, with students, because otherwise, you know, it's just my inner experience. What I'm interested in is how does the impulse that arise in presence, how does that translate itself into action? in our experience and what are all the different other things that get involved in our past our conditioning our you know whatever whatever we think whatever we believe whatever we think this is good or this is bad or it should be here or it shouldn't be here so a lot of the work that i do sitting myself and sitting with students is, is a work of what is present can i be present to that is that okay also it's when this particular state arises, because when we have expanded states, that's easy. What about if we have difficult states? What about if we have pain? What about if we have anger? What about if we have frustration? What about if we want to go and kill somebody, right? What about if, you know, things, all sorts of things arise. Is that okay? Can we really be here? Because that's what I consider love, you know, is, is really that, because love is natural, right? It's a natural quality that is already here. Most of the time, we don't know that it's here because we are engaged with what arises. We are engaged with the motivation of the past. So for me, that interest is when, when you say, you know, the heart was blossoming. For me, it's like everything is included. Can I be with this too? Is that okay? But not just okay, you know, when I am sitting in meditation, which is like, great, everything is okay, right? But is this okay when somebody, you know, is angry with you? Mm -hmm. Is this okay when you have a, a challenging interaction with somebody? Is this still okay when, you know, the events in the world happen that are happening, right? Is it still okay when you, the climate change that we are dealing with and the effects of that, is that still okay then? See, does that have place? And, and does what arise here in response to that, is that okay also? Okay, now you just were, used the word okay about 20 times, so we better talk about what we really mean by okay. So when you say okay, do you mean that you can take it in stride, you can accept it as it is without arguing with reality? Is that what you mean by okay? Yes, yes, that's what I mean, that's what I mean. And what I mean again is that when you go right now to the inner and in this moment, is everything okay the way it is? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds very much like Byron Katie, the way she yeah. teaches. It, well, well it's, it's the natural state, right? We, we can have many ways of wording it, mm -hmm. you see. The reason why I like to use the word okayness is because when we are quiet, it's all obvious, right? When, let's say, you got extremely aggravated in your relationship and you're going through a big drama internally. And so if we really work with okayness, but really not mental concept, and you would ask yourself, is what is present right now okay? And if you really are established in accepting what is as okay, would you really take a very oppositional position in a relationship or in some other situation? In other words, would you stir up as much drama as somebody who is not accustomed to seeing everything is okay and, and this well, person well, is wrong and that idea is wrong well, and they're in opposition to things? It's even deeper than that. Mm -hmm. because. First, you know, when we go into relating, we first need to recognize that okayness is true for everything. 
is the ground of your experience, is the ground of your partner's experience, is the ground of the experience of everything in the world. So when we use okayness as, a, as an inquiry, when we ask ourselves, is something okay? We are not in there and saying, where am I at right now? Am I really in the truth of what I know? Am I really resting in the okayness of everything as is? Or am I engaging in drama? And so first, you know, rather than trying to be anywhere, I, I use this question of okayness as a, you know, the, the answer is yes or no. And if it's a yes, right on, let's be here. If it's a no, we have to clarify our relationship with what is, because otherwise we can process what is forever. And we are never going to get satisfied because that stuff can't be satisfied. The story can't be satisfied, right? But if we come back to the sense of true, real inner okayness, that will be the beginning of our inquiry. And then we re come back to that. And now that doesn't mean, though, and this is where the translation is so important, that doesn't mean that you're not going to go back to your partner and say, what you just did was not okay. You may say that, but it seems like there would be a different quality to it than if you were not established in, uh, in presence. You know, there's so many people who are so contentious these days. The Republicans hate the Democrats, the Democrats hate the Republicans, and Israelis and the Palestinians. I mean, it seems that if all these people were really established in a deep sense of abiding presence, that there might still be differences of opinion and philosophy and, and all, but there wouldn't be this rancor and bitterness and, and outright warfare as a result of, exactly. of these sorts of differences. And even if they were not established, if they were willing, you see, rather than always looking out there, if they were willing to for a moment look within and yeah. see, am I actually at rest, right? right? Is this experience here really knowing that everything is okay the way it is, right? Or resting in presence or whatever we call it, if there was a willingness to do that, you see? Mm. But what, what, what I see in the world more is because there are so many changes happening. First of all, there's billions of people on the planet. That's a huge, humongous collective consciousness. That means a huge amount of tendencies, a huge amount of tendencies that come to be experienced, right? That itself affects the planet, the consciousness tremendously, right? Yeah. Then we have the huge changes of the climate change. Mm -hmm. There's a huge, deep change going on for so many years already that only now it becomes, you know, like more common knowledge, meaning now everybody's talking about it. And many years ago, only a few were talking about it, right? So it's much more visible. But this, these changes affect us, yeah. you see? The human body is affected by it. You see, I don't know if you notice, but there's so much more conflict on the planet right now. First of all, because there's so many more, as I say, so many billions of people, but also we are affected by all these changes that are going on. See, this little nervous system, this little brain, you know, that this all interconnected, there's no separation. And so there's, there is more, you know, tension because of that, right? There's mm. more Hard to say if there's more conflict. I don't know. We'd have to ask an historian. We're not in the middle of World War II or, or anything like that. We're not burning witches on the town square. There's, there's a lot of things that have improved, but there's definitely a lot of strife and a lot of seemingly irreconcilable differences among people. And it seems to me that even a little bit more introspection, if not a deep diving into presence, is the, the antidote. But this is, you know, why, why I said so many billions of human beings on the planet, so many tendencies present. Yeah. Right? The tendencies come here to be cleared. 
most of the people, the gross of the seven billion or however many billions already there are, is not interested in that. You see. Hmm. What did you mean by that just now? The tendencies come here to be cleared? To be experienced, right? By whom? Why would there be even birth in a human body? Mm -hmm. Why would there be even birth? Why would consciousness need to incarnate into any body? Because we are in a human body, but look, there's, there's billions of other beings, right, on the planet. And billions of other planets. Exactly. So why would even incarnation be happening? What is incarnation? Incarnation is tendencies. What are tendencies? Tendencies is that the postponement of being here. Tendencies is the idea that there will be a time in the future that we will get to experience something that we don't have right now. And therefore, we have to keep going. Consciousness has to keep going looking for these experiences. Because if it looks for these experiences, then eventually there's going to be this time, that there's going to be this perfect experience of something. And we get these moments, we get a second of it, and then it's like, well, that's over. Okay, looking for the next one. Mm -hmm. right? So these are tendencies. And we can say, if you and I are, are talking here, sitting in this interview, and whoever is watching, the predominant tendency would be the tendency for freedom. Because otherwise we wouldn't be here talking about it. Right? Wouldn't be interested in this. Yeah. Exactly. However, there are other imprints that have not been cleared that brought us into the human body. And why, why to know our true nature, right? But here is also the time to meet the past, mm -hmm. to not to perpetuate anymore, to not to go through another cycle of there is going to be an experience out there sometime, somewhere, that is going to be better than what is here. There's a lot, of, a lot in that you just said. I, in listening to talks, I'm sorry, maybe it's too much. No, it's good. I, I'm trying to think of this. There are about five different ways I could go with this. You know, so you've alluded to reincarnation just now, and I heard you talk about it in your talks, and it makes a lot of sense to me that as a as a soul, we go through many, many, many lives, experiencing different things, and you also alluded just now to what I would call. A sort of an evolutionary impulse that it's at the heart of everything and that really is probably at the heart of creation itself that without which we wouldn't have a creation we wouldn't have stars forming and eventually exploding and forming heavier elements which form our bodies I'm sure you know that that everything in our body was once part of a star so there's this sort of how did that happen it didn't happen randomly or by like little billiard balls running into each other so there's this kind of evolution toward greater and greater complexity, greater expression of forms or evolution of forms capable of experiencing being, experiencing consciousness, capable of having the intelligence which governs the universe experience itself with greater clarity and embodying that to greater and greater degrees. Sometimes people put the emphasis on you know, we have all these tendencies, we're on this cycle, we're on this wheel of karma, we want to get off and just end the whole thing. And maybe that's a valid perspective, but can't we give God some credit for having created a universe, the universe for a purpose? Well, and that purpose meaning being to bring into existence two beings like you and I who can have a conversation like this about something which we can actually experience, which is a far cry from what it was before the Big Bang. But, you know, we, we have to start in the beginning with, you know, when we are really truly at rest, right? Yeah. Where is the universe? What is the universe? In our experience. Yeah. When we are truly in peace. Why don't you just do that again, Rick? Let's just, just do it again <laughs> okay. together, you know? When we are in the moment here sitting quietly and you direct your attention towards 
you're in there. Beautiful. Then where is the universe, right? Or what is it? In my experience, it's less active, although I have a brain which is enabling me to have that experience, and that brain exactly. is there's exactly. trillions of cells doing exactly. things in that brain. Into the human body, and then we go into the perceptions and all that. Mm -hmm. But when we sit in the real deep truth, you know, then we know that the universe arises in presence. Right? Yes. So even though we have to talk in this dualistic way, and I talk in this way too, because if I want to explain certain things, like if I want to help my students to direct their attention towards tendencies that oftentimes remain invisible, tendencies that bring us here and we kind of have a blind spot and avoidance of like, whoa, let's not go there. And that eventually is a seed that would need to continue in some way, right? So I need to be able to speak in these, in these dual ways. And yet, when we look at, you know, like when we sit truly, truly in presence, then we can see what universe arises in presence. So it's an experience that we are having and the consciousness is having an experience of this. You know, consciousness is having an experience of being in the body. Consciousness is having an experience of having a conversation with you. Yeah. Consciousness is having an experience of billions of humans being on the planet right now, struggling with whatever they are struggling with. So we need to keep it in that perspective, you know, because as I see it, if we take the universe as just it, the entity that exists on its own independently, then we are missing a little bit that, you know, it's, it arises, in, it's, it's here as an experience. Exactly. Right? And it's, it's here as a mechanism through which consciousness can experience itself. And through which consciousness can reach freedom. Right? Reach freedom. Exactly, because there's a reason why, you know, we are here yeah. and why we are going through what we are going through and why we have to go through it and why we say, well, why is this happening to me or why is this happening to this person? Why is this going on? And there's, you know, there's a reason to that as long as we can see it as, oh, that's what it is. Can I be here? Mm. Rather than, oh my God, why is this happening? Or I wish it wasn't here. <laughs> it's funny because you can kind of swing back and forth from seeing it from an individual perspective or seeing it from the perspective of the, you know, the universal consciousness. And, and from that perspective, how could consciousness ever have not been free? Exactly, exactly. From the it, individual perspective, it, it seems like something we want to get to, you know. And yet it doesn't know it, you see, because right. it's tendencies that are here. These are like little seeds that believe themselves to be something other than what they are. It needs to know itself. It needs to know itself. I'm just looking up, a, there's this great T.S. Eliot quote. I'm not finding it right now, but there's something about the, the journey. You know, we go through this whole rigmarole and we come back to where we started and know the place for the first time. Right. You know? Right, right. <laughs> okay, but when you talk about tendencies, I kind of took it to a metaphysical level, but when, you, when you're talking about tendencies, you're talking about vasanas, impressions, ingrained ways of behavior that, that yeah. keep us kind of constricted. Exactly. Or that keep us, because what a tendency is, as I said, is a postponement, right? It's a postponement of being present with what is. And that postponement has been going on for a really long time. So it has been here before this life, and that's the only reason why I talk about it, because otherwise we wouldn't even be in this life, right? If there were, were not certain impressions that are still drawing us into this experience, right? There wouldn't even be that experience. Why? Right? It would be necessary. And we are repositories of many such impressions, right? We are just exactly. bundles of them. And, exactly. and so it's not like we should 
want anyone to feel guilty if they are drawn outward and or don't appreciate you know presence fully in this moment because a lot of this stuff you know we're so wired from so many lifetimes of impressions that that's going to tend to keep happening exactly and that's why my interest is so closely on the inner you know where am i at yeah am i addressed or am i suffering because when the tendency arises it's usually so habitual and so familiar that it feels like me feels like who you are and before you know you are acting on it you are engaged and that engagement recharges that tendency reinforces yeah reinforces it makes it stronger Okay, so you're saying that by kind of catching it and coming back to the self, we could say, coming back to presence, you take the steam out of it, you, you and, and then diminish you, it. Exactly, catching it and, and being, first of all, being aware that that's a tendency, rather than, you see, even, even people who have had deep awakening. I know a lot of people and I talk to a lot of friends. There's, we still have the nervous system and the brain and all that. And there's still tendencies here. And so, so, it, so, so, so even there can be still a misunderstanding, right? When something arises, it can feel like so like natural, but it really isn't, right? It's just the past, right? So, so, for, so first of all, we need to really go back and, and even know that this is the past, right? Mm. But then the reason why we are born in the human body, I'm sure you know, you heard many times, that is one of the prerequisites for freedom. Why would that be? Because first of all, we have that intelligence, which can be so much trouble, but it also gives us that self-reflection. Like so many times today, we said, okay, just go and look on the inner, right? So it gives you the capacity to, to go and look right into our true nature, first of all. But it also gives us a nervous system in the brain. And so when the past arises, one of the reasons that it hasn't been finished is that it hasn't been experienced. And so now we have a nervous system in the brain that can do that. So when the tendency of the past arises and if we can recognize it for what it is, rather than engaging it, we can say, okay, can I be here? And what can I be here means, it means can I really allow the full experience of it in this body right? without engaging it, without suppressing it? But can I allow it to really run through? That's part of the reason why we are born in a human body. Can it really be present? The excitement of it, the shakiness of it, the fear of it, the whatever that is, can that content that was holding it in this seed, right? Can that content fully come and just be here? And can it be experienced? And can it be then recognize like, oh, there was just an imprint, there was just an energy that moved through, that's all it was. Because when it's recognized for what it really is, which is in its essence, everything is our true nature, then it doesn't have to keep doing this thing over and over and over again. And sometimes, and I'm sorry, but sometimes okay. we have to do that over and over and over and over again until the charge of it, which we don't know how long it has been here, maybe millions of years, it has been repeating itself, right? Mm -hmm. You don't know that charge until the charge really diminishes and then it's done, you see? Then it doesn't have to continue. Sure. Well, you can just think in terms of conditioning, you know? I mean, even Pavlov, basically we're, we're habitual creatures. Things get deeply ingrained. And whether it's, you know, and you can take extreme examples such as drug addiction or behavioral tendencies. Let's take an example. Like, for instance, maybe you have a tendency to get angry at people. Many people would just react blindly without thinking, without self-reflection. 
get angry when the impulse arises. What you're saying, well, let you say what you're saying. How would you recommend doing it differently? Well, well, first of all, you know, I, when I say tendency, I mean there's something prior to our this life experience, mm -hmm. right? When we come into this body, there's already tendencies. And see? there could be new tendencies that were formed in this life. Right. Where we say, you know, oh, the baby is so innocent. That's yeah. true. And it wouldn't be here if there wasn't some, you know, past pushing it into this, right? Right, right. So, so the tendencies are already here. And yet they reinforce themselves through, throughout of this life experience. So because of certain tendencies, we will be already drawn into certain situations in this life which would reinforce that tendency, right? So take a particular example, whether the one I just brought up, getting angry at people, or some other one if you'd like to choose it. Maybe let's draw a contrast between how people ordinarily would do it and reinforce it, or how you would recommend dealing with it so as to unreinforce it. You want to take it more into the practical level, and that's a little, you know, that's a little higher up than just kind of understanding how it all works, but let's just take it there, okay? Mm -hmm. So on the practical level, for that reaction from anger to be there, there had to be somewhere, we don't know when, a prior movement away from our true nature. Because when we are at rest in our true nature, it will be rare that we would react because anger is natural too. And sometimes anger is important, right? It's an expression, but it will be rare that we'll just react from anger. So that means that movement away has already happened somewhere. So when somebody has a lot of reactivity from anger, I would say, okay, let's slow it down. Let's notice it as an experience in your body. Let's sense it for a moment. Let's come out of the thinking about it, you know? Let's kind of drop that. Let's bring it back to the sensory and let's just kind of notice it as an experience. Let's just say, is it okay for it to be here right now? Somebody would say yes or no. Okay, depending on what it is, we would sit with it in a certain particular way. And so when you say okay, it means that rather than pick up the phone and yell at so-and-so, you're asking them to put their attention more within and maybe feel the physiology or, or some yeah. kind of inner uh, impulse that's, that's spurring them to that exactly. kind of action. And I am asking also them to, to ask themselves, is it okay that this impulse is present right now? Are they okay with it or not? And then we just do a little inquiry. Let me just explain this. We just sit with it for a while until something shifts and they come back to rest. And when they come back to rest, then they regain perspective. And then they go like, oh, oh, there's other options. It doesn't just have to be, ah, you know, screaming, right? There's other options. Oh, okay, okay regain perspective because we came back to rest. So it sounds like you're saying that there's a cycle. Action, impression, desire. We perform an action, it creates an impression that, that gives plants the seeds of future desires, which gives rise to another impression, another action, and so on. And what you're saying is nip it in the bud rather than perpetuate this cycle, break the cycle by coming back to kind of a self-referral, self-awareness kind of thing, feeling the sensation if it's there and you know, not necessarily acting reflexively. Exactly, but not suppressing it either. Not, not suppressing but it, but really maybe. Experiencing the heat of it, the challenge of it, the emotion of it, the how it manifests in the body, let's have it. Let's have the sensation. We don't want to suppress it, but we want to really experience it to go like, oh, okay, we can be here. You see, that movement doesn't have to take our attention away from who we are. It sounds like feeling it like that uh, would actually 
produce the physiological change necessary to sort of eliminate that impression in the brain, in the nervous it system. Be, exactly, it would change the pathway in the brain over time, it would change the pathway and it would really, as you say, you know, it will eliminate it over time as an impression, right? It wouldn't be there. But let's say in that case, I would go even deeper and I would say, how come somebody is so reactive? What is the experience of the past that made them so that they can't be here? Well, you're not asking them to go back to a past life and realize that they no, you know, no. were mistreated or something like that. Well, well you know, I'm, I'm not asking them to go anywhere, but I'm saying if there were experiences in their past, this past, current past or other past, that resulted in a certain unresolved charge mm -hmm. that is still present, then that charge is what we want to meet. Without necessarily knowing the specifics of those experiences. We don't know the specifics, but sometimes the specifics come up. That's okay, but that's not what we are looking for. Right. We are just looking to see like, oh, there is this charge, and that charge has been here for a really long time ago. And when anything touches that charge, delicate uh, touch, there's like, ah, that reactivity happens. So that reactivity is almost a secondary pattern, right? Because the primary is, there is something I can't be with. There's something I had to, and I personalize, I mean, I, I say I because I don't know how to say it otherwise. There's something we couldn't be here with before. In your own experience, when you first started doing this after your awakening, was there like a whole shitload, to use that expression, of stuff that was coming on fast and furious that you had to deal with, and then it gradually diminished over time, and now it's kind of tapered off to a trickle? Or has well, there been a pretty consistent momentum? In the, in the beginning, there was a very spontaneous, natural just arising, and things would just turn over mm -hmm. almost by itself, right? And then eventually, after some period of time, I don't remember, you know, the specifics of time, but it hit on some kind of resistance. Mm -hmm. See, there was some inner resistance, and there was for a moment, luckily just for a moment, some sense of wanting to identify with the awakened state, rather than being present to what is. And luckily, that has been seen very, very quickly. But what was missing in my personal experience was something that I call tenderness. Mm. There was a lot of, just coming from my conditioning, there was a lot of harshness about being with certain states. And then there was a certain level of arrogance from that awakeness, too, that just thought, like, whatever, this is not important, you know, we don't have to be here, right? Well, what's this nonsense, you know, let's not just not mess with it. But there was, there was the tenderness missing of just, okay, this is what's here, can I be here? And eventually there was that shift, and, you know, because I, I remember back then dealing with some physical challenges, and I remember suddenly going, like, wait a minute, let me just be here. And then suddenly realizing, whoa, this is just, this is the way to go. Because in being here, that's what eventually relaxes what is here. And then when we really come back to rest, everything begins to orientate by that. You know, everything goes like, oh yeah, that's great. I can be here now. That's wonderful. That's interesting. So it kind of sounds like, you know, once that awakening occurred, then 
a lot of rearrangement needed to take place. And, and in your experience, you know, there was this tendency of arrogance or harshness or whatever, but that stuff was coming to your awareness, to your attention, because it needed to be swept out, it needed to be resolved. Exactly, and, it needed to be yeah. met, you know, it needed to be seen for what it is, rather than just perpetuate, right? And it might have been there even before the awakening, that you might have been blind to it or something. Of course, of course, I'm sure there was, I'm sure it was, I'm sure it was. And then on top of it, it became maybe a little bit of a spiritual conditioning, you know, which, by the way, so much of it out there, the spiritual conditioning, right? Like what we think is spiritual and how it's supposed to be, and rather than the true being with what is here. Yeah, you talked a lot in your recordings about authenticity, and that what you just said reminds me of that. And my interpretation or impression of authenticity is just, you know, not, not mood-making. I mean, not clinging to an attitude or a belief or just some, like, trying to take refuge in some sort of spiritual mindset, but just being genuinely, you know, what you are, not, not trying to gloss over it in any way. Yeah, and, and, and is the inner, the true knowing on the inner and the outer, the expression, is it congruent? Yeah. Is there congruency between the real knowing of what we know and then how how does that translate when you talk to your friend? How does that translate when you are with your spouse or your partner? How does that translate when you are with your children? How does it translate when you are interacting with the world? Is there still, is it still congruent or is it just, I know the truth and then, you know, something else happens when there's action. Do you walk your talk? Exactly. A lot of times when you were talking, I was reminded of, uh, you know, like the Tao Te Ching, which talks about being in tune with the Tao, you know, and it even talks about rulers ruling countries if they're in tune with the Tao and how smoothly and, and uh, in, tune with, in tune with nature, really, or, or the Gita, you know, action in accordance with Dharma. If we're sort of uh, isolated in constricted individual consciousness without an appreciation of the, that sort of deeper, more universal value, then we're just kind of kicking around with very partial understanding and appreciation of things and making a mess. But a lot of what you said reminded me of those principles of just acting from a, a settled state, settled in presence, and then who's really the actor then? There's, there's a saying, Brahman, Brahman is the charioteer. Yeah, yeah, and also recognizing though that when that action really is based on our past, to yeah. really the difference, you see, and if necessary, do what is needed, which is inquiry. And if necessary, make amendments in the world if that action has harmed anything for anybody in some way. Mm -hmm. And really, so, so that brings everything into congruence, you see. It's not, it's not about perfect, right? Because we can also think like, what's that perfect state, you know, and nothing ever goes wrong, you know. But no, you know, we are all just in it learning as we are learning, right? So if we recognize later on, Oh man, this was just my reactivity, you know. Can I make amend amendments with for that? Because that what brings the inner and the outer into congruence. Yeah, I'm reminded of your fellow uh, Papaji disciple Andrew Cohen, whom I've interviewed, and uh, there was a lot of controversy around him. And in a, about a year ago or six months ago, he just decided to stop teaching and completely do a, a self-inventory and he's calling up people individually and apologizing for things he's done and all there's this you know and he had had a very profound awakening but there was i think perhaps but he would admit even i'm mentioning him because he's being very public about this but he would admit that there was still a lot of conditioning governing his behavior and 
you know, a lot of people got kind of upset and disillusioned when he made this turn of, of heart. And a friend of mine who's been with him for years felt like, oh, he's just pulled the rug out under me. But my initial reaction was, right on, Andrew. That's fantastic. You know, what, a, what, what an evolutionary step for you. <laughs> Isn't, it? Isn't it great? That's like how, you know, that's, that's, the, you know, that's what's needed, right? That's beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's like he deserves congratulations for coming to the realization that that was necessary and for trying to make amends, as you say. Exactly, beautiful. And, you know, a few years ago from now, maybe he'll come back as a teacher, but he'll be a much better one without all who that. Knows, you know, who knows, right? But at least there's that tiny little recognition and that step into like, oh, that's not enough. That's not enough to just know it and to know it in a certain way. That's not enough. Hmm. There's something else needed, you see. Embodiment, it's house cleaning. Exactly, congruence. Congruence. Right? Something is needed. Yeah. yeah. So it almost seems like maybe a person can go on for a whole lifetime acting inappropriately after awakening has dawned, but I get the impression that you're not going to be allowed to do that in most cases. It's eventually exactly. going to crack exactly. through you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We hope, or something is going to Something's crack. going to happen. Or the people around you are finally going to say, you got to be kidding, right? <laughs> yeah, right. You better think... clean up. Huh. Do you think there are any people who eventually reach a point at which there is really little or nothing left to process, that they've really worked out all the vasanas? You know, I don't know that. Do you think Papaji was that way? You know, I, I wouldn't comment on that. I don't know. Hard to judge. And, and I would say, you know, when we talk about Papaji, Papaji would say, somebody asked him, Papaji, do you still need to be vigilant? Mm -hmm. And he would say with every breath. Yeah. Because he says, you never know, you never know, you know, when something can arise, you just never know, mm -hmm. you see, and you have to be vigilant. There are also stories of Ramana and his disciples and Ramana, you know, when they were dying in the process of dying, Ramana would sit with them and hold one hand on the heart and one on the head. Mm -hmm. He said, so that the Vasana can't escape, so that it's met here. Hmm. And he said he was successful with one, but he was not successful with the other because his attention moved and the vasana escaped and it just went to another birth, right? Interesting. See, see, that's what I mean when I said in the beginning, I, I'm just not thinking like that. What I'm really more interested in, where am I? Where is my attention? Am I at rest or am I suffering? Right? Hmm. You know? Each moment. Exactly. What's going on hmm. here? Yeah. I know you advocate taking a certain amount of time to just be in silence each day, either some sort of meditation or, or just sitting in silence. You want to elaborate a bit on the importance of that? There's two or three different things I really recommend. One is, you know, we need a quiet time for self-reflection and just, you know, coming back to rest, right? The life is very engaging and oftentimes there's a lot of things going on and we can easily get distracted by what's going on. And so that keep coming back, that's what brings that congruence. And it also brings a lot of insight about what are the tendencies that are moving, right? That's kind of the time. You know, I also recommend a lot for people these days to sit in the awareness of the sensations in the body, because that's often missing and that's very different than meditation, but it really helps them later in the moment, you know, or in inquiry to be present to what is rather than just be totally, you know, taken by the experience. And then, of course, inquiry, which is, can I be here? Can I be with what is here? Can I let it come to rest? Right? All three of those things, there's some overlap, too. I mean, you can be sitting in a meditative state and be aware of the sensations in the body and be processing stuff and all, but 
Yeah, it's a little, I find it a little different, you know, mm. but, but anyway, there are just some elements that I think are helpful these days. Yeah. I'm reading some notes here that I think Lee or Nina sent me, and just, we've, we've covered most of them. I'll just read you some of them, and we'll Maybe see. we talk about relationship a little bit. Yeah, I'm okay, just, go for that. Let's do that. Because that's one of the things that I talk about, you mm -hmm. know, if you have me. You know, my interest in talking about it is because I find the relationship, being in relationships, you know, not just uh, intimate partnerships, but in general, that it really uh, tells us so much about where we are. Yeah. Ramdas said, if you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your parents. Exactly. So, so it's a very direct, you know, inquiry. Right. right. So no, you know, you can't hide, right? And, and as I talk about relationships, you know, uh, I'm saying that there's a certain part of our conditioning that only arises when we relate, see. It doesn't arise that much when we are just on our own. So you can say, well, I was fine before I met you, or I was fine before I talked to you, and then I talked to you and I'm not fine anymore. And what's not fine is, is because conditioning has arisen that it's not been visible before. So in that way, I see if done rightly, not as an agenda, but as an awareness, relationships can be a great path to freedom. But not as an agenda, like, well, we have to be in a relationship to be free. No, but if you happen to be in relationships in your life, which everybody is, in some kind of relationship, then that can become a great way to really inquire into some of these uh, tendencies or some of these conditionings that we don't know otherwise. Because when, we, when you are by yourself, they don't show up th that strongly, even though they show up also. They show up in the way we relate to work in the way we relate to food, in the way to, we relate to our body, in the way we relate to the practice or sitting or, or inquiry, they show up in many ways too. But then when you relate, whoa, you know, it just shows up very, very strongly. And that's then a great, you know, place for inquiry. Well, 50% of all Americans get divorced. Uh, Mickey Rooney, who died recently, was married eight times. I heard that, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Seems like a lot of people haven't learned that lesson, and uh, you know they they probably have this outer directed thing of something's wrong here. It's your fault. I'm moving on. As a teacher, how would you recommend to people that they use relationship as a, a teaching tool for discovering one's own weak points? Right. Well, first of all, I, I would say you know, a relationship that means two nervous systems arising in presence. Mm -hmm. So which we have to remember, because the, whatever this nervous system is going through, the other is going through similar things, it's just a little different. But two nervous systems arising in presence, so that that's first really important to recognize that it's, it's not, that what is going on here is not so different than what is going on over there. Which is often, the reason we don't see it is because the projection, the mechanism of projection, the positive and negative projection, covers that up. And we don't see the other just being another that is going through whatever we are going through also. Just, you know, another experience arising in presence. So I first teach that kind of taking that little distance and looking at that projection and understanding that the other is just another. They are going through whatever we are going through, right? It's just another experience arising here, first of all. Secondly, you know, I say, you know, fulfillment or happiness or rest is not found out there. We can't find it with the other. We can share it, but we can't find it with the other because it's an inner experience. 
And when we come to relate, you know, there's so many of these unf uh, unfinished early experiences and early states that arise. And when that gets involved, you know, I talk about conditioning and there's a certain kind of conditioning that arises in relating and there's certain experiences that or certain parts of our conditioning that are trying to get met by being with another. They are trying to get finished by being with another. So if anybody's in a relationship that has these so-called issues where people can't get along, that's the unresolved past. That's your unresolved past, my unresolved past. That's what it is. And there's no resolving it out there, right? There's no, there's no meeting it out there. That the only way we can meet it is by meeting it here. So that's why I say, you know, I really recommend inquiry for religion. Can you come back to rest? You know, can you come back to rest? Yeah, that's, that's the beginning. There's, of course, many things I talk about when we talk about relating, but can we come back to rest? Do you think that if a person didn't have unresolved issues, they wouldn't even bother getting into a relationship? I don't know that that's true, you see. I'm not sure. Maybe. You know, I'm not sure. Because there's part of our pull towards relating is unconscious unresolved past. Part of it is conscious, you know, like, wow, that's great, you know, I, I want to have that, or be with that, or be around that. So I don't know, you know, maybe, I don't know. Are there people among your students who are taking your teaching to heart with regard to relationships, and in order to recognize that the, the fault doesn't lie with the other, you know, it's their own tendencies that are bubbling up, but they're in a relationship where the partner isn't a student of yours, and, it, and isn't thinking of it that way, and they're just going on doing what they do. What do you say to such students? Here I would have to respond very practically to any each particular person, mm -hmm. because everybody is different and I would have to know much more information before I can give an answer. Right? Well, let's say you're working in a job and your boss is a jerk, and he really is a jerk, you know, <laughs> and uh, you, have con you don't have control over the way he behaves, but you have control over the way you behave, and you can sort of... You have control over if you remain in the job or not. You right? do, you have that. And so, and so, you know, what I see inquiry really does for people, because it does different things for different people, right? Sometimes what it does is that whoever they are with begins to resonate with it. See, an interesting example, I had one, two, three students, women students over the last few years that have been in my longer programs. And I did a program on relationship a couple of months ago, and their husbands showed up because they were sharing some things with them, right? They decided to join it, you mean? Well, no, they, they came to another little program I was doing because mm -hmm. these women were in my long-term program. You can't just join it, you know, but they came to another... I had a talk on the relationship and they showed up, right? Oh, so the first thing is people can begin to resonate. They may have a different path. They may have a different way, but if they begin to resonate, they will start to like it. They start to like the changes. I remember a husband saying to me once, I wish you would keep my wife on the retreat because every time she comes, this is so great, you know, when she comes after the retreat, right? So they either begin to resonate or they begin to really hate it. And if the change is something that they can't really resonate with, then they, that that's going to drop out at some point. Or it's going to create a transformation, you know. I have another example of a student and she would come and say, I can't really resonate or I can't really be with my family because they are... You know, they eat pizza and they watch television and they, you know, I, when I go there and she says, and I'm a vegetarian and I'm, you know, doing yoga and I'm, and she said, what should I do? 
And I say, well, why don't you just go and hang out with them a little bit? And she said, I can't do that. And I said, well, just go and watch some television. You know, you don't have to eat the pizza. Maybe get vegetarian. And so she goes, and then some months later, she comes to me and she says, you know, I don't know what happened, she said, but my father so got into it that now he's reading Eckhart Tolle and he started like a book club or something, I don't know, you know, he's just so totally into it. And I'm just saying, well, it's a simple, you know, like there's the resonance, right? And if we trust in it, like with the job example, I have another student in a program right now and she just said, I have been in a really bad job for so many years. And since I have been doing this inquiry, Something happened and I just quit the job. Yes. She said, I came so much into that congruence within myself and into the resonance. And I realized I was so codependent that I couldn't really do it before. But now that I know that here everything is okay, now I can just leave it and I can just do, go and do something else, right? It's not like there's like one advice, you know what I mean? But when you do the work, when you do the inner work, the outer begins to respond. No, that's good. I mean, I, I understand how you couldn't give a specific advice, but that general principle, if you take care of it, this is, this is a Bengali saying, if no one comes on your call, then go ahead alone. So if you do it, then one way or the other, the outer exactly. environment is going to change. Exactly. Yeah. And I often, you know, I talk to people who have had addictions before. They know when they have changed from the addiction, like most of their life or most of their friends fall away. But then they find a whole new life. Oh, yeah. That happened to me. I mean, I, oh, was, I was into drugs. I was hanging out with all my drug friends. I, I learned to meditate. And for about three months, I just walked the dog every day and, and you know, didn't hang out with anybody. And then a whole new social circle began to build. Exactly. Exactly. Beautiful. Yeah. It's just the way it works, right? Yeah. Beautiful. Cool. You are talking a lot more about the nervous system these days. We've, we've sort of covered that. But... Um, I think it's important because obviously the, the nervous system is like, if consciousness is like live through the nervous, it's similar to like, you know, you, you need a television set, set to pick up on the signals that are in the air all the time anyway, but you don't pick them up without a television set and the quality of your television set determines how clearly you pick them up. So like that, we have a nervous system and... You can finish the thought. No, we have a nervous system. And what I say is that the more we understand this instrument, you know, we live mm -hmm. in the body, right? The more we understand and we understand how it works, the more helpful we can be to, the more helpful it is to being with our own experience. Yeah. So when we understand how does it work and when we understand, you know, when I, when I teach about it, I talk about the brain and I talk about the instinctual parts of the brain and and there's a lot of our experience that is not accessible by thinking which really is what proves what the spiritual teaching has been talking about forever but physiologically you know it's proven that the higher brain as beautiful as it is you know doesn't reach into the instinctual parts right so it can't regulate you know stress it can't regulate these instinctual states. You know, they come on and they are, they are here. And you, no matter what you think, they are here. Right. Sure. So we need to develop a different way, and that way is through the sensation. If we understand that, that's how it works. You know, then if we also understand how trauma past affects our ability to be present, right? Hmm. If we understand trauma as not as an event that happened in the past, but if we understand trauma as a charge an unresolved charge that is present in our nervous system. 
then we see how that charge limits the capacity that we have in every moment to be with what is. So if we can understand that, if we can work with that, if we can have the tenderness and kindness and you know generosity of being here, like, well, can I just be here? Can I just be here with this, right? And understand that that's what's going to help. See, because when we talk about capacity, like, can I be with challenges in life? Challenges in life happen, capacity gets smaller and smaller and smaller within, right? And we say, well, I want to make a change, but we want to make a change out there, right? Rather than saying, well, I want to make a change, so let me be with this very small capacity. Let me be with this nervous system that is so struggling with whatever is going on in life. And from that being, something happens, capacity opens up. Mm. Now we can come and deal with what's happening rather than just, I don't want this. I want to, I want it to change. I don't want to be here. We can just, well, can I be here? Yeah. So when we understand, you know, it and work it the way it needs to be worked, the more helpful it is for our ability to be here. Right? Reminds me of the first time I ever saw Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. He gave a lecture in which he started quoting Darwin. He was saying, survival of the fittest is the law of nature. And... I don't know if that's how Darwin meant it, but he said there's so much challenge these days. The pace of life is increasing so much, and we have to increase our fitness to our capacity, basically, I think he was saying. In fact, he used an analogy. He says if, if a donkey has to carry a heavy load, you either have to lighten the load or strengthen the donkey. And he said, you know, sometimes you can't lighten the load because there's so much coming at you in life. So yeah. you, you need to strengthen your capacity, increase your capacity. And then, you know, what might have seemed like an overwhelming barrage of stuff becomes manageable. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. And so I talk more about the nervous system, how it works, and also how to sit with it. Because we have this, you know, we have learned um, a lot of us come from some, you know, like, what does it mean to be with something? It means like get totally overwhelmed and let it all just be here. And that's not necessarily how the nervous system works. Yeah. We have to learn like, well, just capacity and a little bit, you know, how, you know, regulate and all that. And once we get that, then it, it helps us so much with practice, right? Inquiry. I'm sure you've heard the term neuroplasticity. Exactly. And there's a lot of that going on, I think, in what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, because, because, you know, the change, it used to be believed that there is no change in the brain after a certain time, right? right. And, of course, in the spiritual teach realm, it was always true that, of course, the change happens. Whenever the consciousness, you know, sets, right, then, then that's change, you know, it changes everything. So now it's like, well, by repeating certain actions, certain behaviors, certain way of being, eventually it, it develops a different pathway in the brain to that brain plasticity, right? It's changeable which is another way of saying, you know, you can be free, right? It's possible. It's available to you this lifetime. It's possible. And a lot of scientists are recognizing that too, like Rick Hansen and Rudy Tanzi and various scientists are all writing about how dramatically the brain can actually change. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. There's a point that one of your helpers sent me, I think, Lee. She said, uh, one point she'd like me to bring out in this, that the impact of doing a long-term program with you or with any other satsang-oriented teacher or teaching is an opportunity to deepen into presence in a way that is continuously more impactful than a satsang here and there. That, that long-term programs provide a safe container in which deep-rooted vasanas or patterns of conditioning can be seen, held, and fully let be here as they are. 
and witnessed by others in a non-judgmental way that can provide a path to really set these attachments free. So I guess I'm bringing that up as a sort of a moving toward a conclusion of the interview that you offer these long-term programs, six-month programs and whatnot, where you meet with people in fairly small groups in an intimate way, not in physically in the same place, but over a conference call. Maybe you could speak a bit about what I just said, the impact that you've seen in these long-term programs as opposed to attending a satsang here or a talk there. In my own teaching, that has also changed over the years, right? Because there's different interests at different times. And so initially, you know, my interest was just share it with anybody. Mm -hmm. Just go as, as bright, as wide as you can and anywhere and everything. That was the movement in the beginning. And then eventually there was more like developing of like, how can I really help people to be here? Because not everybody understands when you say, just be here. But what does it mean? How do you do it, right? And then eventually I recognized, you know, my interest now is in that deeper work with people. It's yeah. not really anymore just bringing them back over and over and over to recognition of presence. Now the work is more like, hey, what stops you really from fully resting here? Let's address that. And that is what the longer programs are about. And the initial six-month program is really broader because I have new students come into it and that's a brother that really covers, you know, more direct experience and more inquiry and how to do it and all that. But then after that initial six-month program, and even in this, we go deeper into the tendencies. But after the initial six-month program, I really spend time more individually with people. You know, people write stuff. There are certain questions they answer. We interact. We do things in which I can be more of help to these particular tendencies that maybe are not visible to them, you know, otherwise. And also the longer, the longer time, you know, it's like when we talk about brain plasticity or when we talk about practice, you know, I, I'm not really satisfied anymore with somebody just visiting with me for a moment. I really want to see the change. And when I want to see the change, that takes time. And so when we can do this over and over and over again for a certain period of time, that usually results in a more permanent change. I remember hearing you say that you went through a phase where you would be walking down the street and you would actually see people's past lives and stuff like that. Do you still have that something like of that nature with your students where you're kind of seeing much more deeply into their makeup or their, their nature than people ordinarily would see? What, what I can say is, and this is the gift and the curse, you know, of consciousness, right, of that recognition is that, you know, even walking on the street or looking at anybody, you know, I can tell, I can tell their history, I can tell the different things that they went through, I can tell what their the conditioning is and so on and on and on. I'm not going to speak more about it, but in a flash it happens and I can see that all of right? Which sometimes I really work on protecting myself in a way from this information. And so places I go, I, I don't like to talk about what I do and I don't like to engage in that way. I try to really keep very much to, you know, like, let's not even engage on that level, right? Let, let me not even, that information comes to me anyway. Yeah, there's a saying, you know, too much information. <laughs> right, right, right. And it's, it's, it's not just too much, but it's just like the significance of it, you know, that can be challenging, you know what I mean? Because it's not just information, it's very significant information. But it would seem that that would be a handy capability to have in working with students to be oh, able to so was, see much more deeply into so their... When I see, sit with a student, that's why that's where I reserve the time 
that, right? Because just just being in the world that could be, you know, overwhelming. But just but sitting with the students that's very helpful because then I can see where they are at. I yeah, can good. Really happening, and that's how I can be helpful. You know, more. Sure. Helpful. Yeah, so it's not something you really want to have going on in the grocery store, but when you're sitting with a student, and, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And yet that information comes in anyway sometimes, and it's, you know, it's just how it is. So. Yeah. So how many different programs do you have? You have this six-month thing, and then... You know, because of the limits of my health, I only do usually two six-month programs uh, throughout the winter and fall and winter. And they're identical, so you do one and then another? One is for new students, and one is for the students that have done programs before. I see. So the first one's like a prerequisite to the second one. Well, in a way, yes, 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 because people learn inquiry. Mm -hmm. And then throughout the summer, I do smaller programs, and also a program, like a five-week program, where I teach inquiry, too. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this other, I do some open calls and some other different little things, you know. Okay. And shorter programs in the summer, too. Yeah, people are busy with things in the summer. Exactly. Good. Well, it sounds like you have a whole lot of... If, if a person having listened to this interview feels inspired to plug into it somehow, there's all, there's all kinds of things they can do. Yes, of course. They can come to our website and they can look at our schedule and they can see this variety of ways to come and visit and see if that's something that they would like to. Yeah. And... Um, and as I mentioned in the first interview, I have some friends that I've known for decades that are students of yours and uh, have really consistently been engaged with you. Well, that reminds me of one more question, which is that what kind of changes have you seen in, in people who have worked with you for a long time? The one thing is, unfortunately, sometimes you say, you know, unfortunately, when people go through the good changes, you don't see them anymore, right? Because they just, you know, they don't need to do it anymore, right? Uh. But what the changes that I see really in long-term students is the capacity to be here. The capacity to be here and really what they can be with within their own experience. And also the what I see, which is really amazing. You know, I have seen this over and over and over and over again. And I see this in many of the students that you probably know. The changes are in how does that translate into their life? How does that capacity show up in the way they are actually functional in life? That's where I see the, the biggest change, really, you know, real-time change, right? Well, that would really be the acid test, I should think, you know? Exactly. And do you ever have some students who say, sorry, Neil, I'm just not getting it. Maybe I should move on. Well, they probably did move on. They just moved on anyway. that <laughs> <laughs> I have that conversation, but... I don't think that ever happened, you know. I don't mm -hmm. think that maybe there was maybe there was one time that a person came into a program, and she said, "I just don't." She was with another teacher before, and the teacher speaks in a different way, and she came into the program and she says, "I just don't understand how you are saying it." And I said, "Well, you know, you just relax, and then you will." But she, but she decided to just move on, and that's you know that's just what to do, right? I mean, come who comes. Exactly. Yeah. Great. Is there anything else that? you feel like saying before we conclude? No, no, I think that's good, you know. I think that's, we, we have done it all. And, we, and maybe one thing I always want to say is, you know, we want to know freedom is really available to us. That is our natural state and we can know it in this lifetime. And that's what I would like everybody to remember, that that's really true that we can and it's possible. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. And even more so these days than might have been true 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. It seems like it's, it's more in the air these days. 
see things are speeding up on the planet so there's really like okay you know what's what else to do you know you can still go and do the nonsense that you're doing or you can just really go like whoa wait a minute this is really true i can actually be here that's great well i think that we've given people a nice overview and i think we managed to cover a lot of things that we didn't talk about too much in the first interview so it's worth listening to both i'd say beautiful so let me make some concluding remarks First of all, thanks again, Neelam. It was wonderful talking with you. I really enjoy it. And I know you had to do a lot of running around and we sent you equipment and you know, had to, all kinds of stuff we try to do to make. <laughs> so that was great. I appreciate you doing all that. And I just want to make a few general comments. So, well, first of all, as we've already said during the interview, if you want to get in touch with Neelam, you just go to her website, which is neelam.org. And I'll have a link to that on batgap.com. And there will be a page for this interview in particular. If you happen to be watching this on YouTube or something, you can go to batgap.com. You'll see that page with a lot more information and links to Neelam's website. And you'll also see all the other interviews I've done, well over 200 now. There are several different indices. There's an alphabetical index, a chronological index, a bunch of other things if you play around with the menus on the website. You'll also see a link to an audio podcast so that you can subscribe on iTunes and just listen to the audio. There's a donate button, which I appreciate people clicking if they feel inspired. There's a place to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted. So you'll get about one email a week as a result of signing up there. There's a discussion group that crops up around each interview, a forum. And uh, there's a different section of the forum for each interview. So you can go in and discuss some of the things we've talked about in this interview, if, if you like. Thanks for listening or watching. And thanks again, Neelam. And, thanks so much, Rick. It's so nice. Such a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it was great. I appreciate you and all the work that you put into it. It's just so awesome. You know, I really, really appreciate that. Well, it's a lot of fun. And I have some wonderful helpers. My wife, who's sitting here, who does hours a day worth of stuff. And my friend from high school, Ralph Preston, who does all the video post-production. Larry Kelly up in Canada, who does the audio post-production, a guy named Jerry in Utah who coordinates the sending of the equipment and testing things with people. There's a, there's a team of translators and transcribers headed up by a guy named Nicholas uh, who's in Spain. So there's a lot of people who've stepped forward to volunteer, which is another thing you'll find on the website is a page of potential volunteer activities if you'd like to take a look at that and maybe there'll be something that resonates with your skills. So good, so we'll see. Yeah, and I also mean though you personally Personally, listening to hours and hours and hours before the interview, that is so awesome and deeply appreciated. So. Well, I really enjoy it. It's, it's very listenable. <laughs> it's good, good stuff. All right. Thanks, Neelam. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.